You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 161, The Early War at Sea, Part 11, Never Enough Boats. This week, a big thank you goes out to Andrew for the donation, and to Big Fat Boss, Dave, Boz, Damien, Euperine, and John for choosing to support the podcast by becoming members. You can find out more over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. During the first six weeks of the Second World War, even with their lack of numbers, the restrictive rules of engagement placed on them, and the efforts of the Royal Navy, the German U-boats would sink 60 ships in just the first six weeks. These ships varied greatly in size, from small steamers all the way up to the U-boat's crowning achievement, the aircraft carrier Courageous. But this was only the beginning. During the last three months of 1939, there would be two important events that would have a longer-term impact on the war at sea. The first was the attack by U-47, under the command of Gunther Prien, against the British fleet anchorage at Scapa Flow. The second were the first attempts at executing the German Wolfpack attacks. Both of these changes would occur in October, before the weather in the northern Atlantic reached a point where further U-boat operations were more difficult and would be curtailed until the return of better weather in early 1940. This episode will look at these two actions, the changes that they caused, and then the state of the war against British trade at the end of 1939. Scapa Flow was the fleet anchorage of the British home fleet in 1939, just as it had been during the First World War. But from the very beginning of the war, there would be efforts made to find some way of attacking ships that were in Scapa Flow. A few episodes ago, we discussed how the attacks of the Luftwaffe would play a part in keeping the Royal Navy out of Scapa Flow. But another major reason for this change was the attack of the U-47. Obviously, the British knew that U-boats might try to find a way into Scapa Flow to launch an attack on the stationary warships, and so they had taken efforts to reduce this possibility through static anti-submarine defenses. One of these defenses was in the form of block ships, which limited the channels that were navigable for German vessels. The Germans, of course, knew that these defenses were in place, but that did not really deter them from the effort. And so during September and October, there were efforts to find out more about the defenses in the area. This came in the form of reconnaissance done by the Luftwaffe, as well as a few smaller U-boats as they kind of tried to probe and find a weakness. These efforts were eventually successful, with one of the channels not being fully blocked by block ships, and that might allow a U-boat the ability to move in through Kirk Sound. 
With this weakness identified, Donitz selected Gunther Priam and U-47 to make the attack on a night that coincided with the new moon, which would result in maximum darkness, and this would take place on October 13th. Priam was briefed on his mission, given the information about Kirk Sound, and the U-47 would be on its way. Throughout the journey, the crew of the U-47 were not briefed, and all secret documents in the U-boat's Enigma machine had been left behind in Germany, due to the likely event that Prian would be either sunk or captured, both of which might result in the British gaining access to the U-boat in the confined areas of Scapa Flow, so they didn't want them to be able to capture an Enigma machine, for example. Prian would finally announce to his crew that they were making their way into Scapa Flow only after they had arrived, and after they had been fed a very nice meal of veal cutlets, which was somewhat exceptional for a U-boat. Then the U-47 made its way through a narrow opening in the block ships. The journey into Scapa Flow was slow, and it would take several hours as the U-boat very slowly moved forward. When the U-47 reached the area of the anchorage of the Royal Navy, it would spot two ships, which Priam believed were the battleship Royal Oak and the battlecruiser Repulse. He was correct on one count, it was the Royal Oak, but the other ship was not the Repulse and was instead the seaplane transport ship Pegasus. Two torpedoes would be fired at the Royal Oak, and one torpedo would be fired at the Pegasus. The fourth torpedo that was supposed to be on its way to the Pegasus misfired in the tube. Only one of these three torpedoes would actually hit and explode, and that was one of the ones fired at Royal Oak. But instead of hitting anything vital, the torpedo would simply explode on the Royal Oak's forward anchor chain, cutting the chain and also causing some structural damage and blowing a hole in the side of the ship. The U-47 would then turn around and fire its stern torpedo while the bow tubes were reloaded, but the stern torpedo did not detonate, although it's unclear if it missed or it was just another dud. Then, when the bow tubes were loaded again, three more torpedoes were all fired at the Royal Oak, and this time all three of them would hit, and all three of them would explode. The results were catastrophic. There were three major holes in the ship, one in the engine room, and then two closer to amidships. Just as worryingly, a massive fire started in the magazines. It would take only 13 minutes for the Royal Oak to tip on its side and sink, with 833 men, out of a total crew of 1,200, losing their lives. By that time, Prian and the U-47 were already on their way out of Scapa Flow, having completed their task just over two hours after making their initial way into the British Anchorage, and just a few hours later, they were back in the North Sea and on their way back to Germany. This was a tremendous success, even if only one ship had actually been sunk, but Prian was not exactly satisfied, writing in the ship's log that it was, quote, a pity that only one was destroyed, end quote. When they arrived back in Germany, the crew was flown to Berlin to meet personally with Hitler, and Prian was awarded the Knight's Cross of the Iron Cross, the first member of the German Submarine Corps to receive that honor. Because of the risk of both air and submarine attack, the Royal Navy would abandon Scapa Flow as a fleet anchorage until March 1940 when both the protections against further U-boat attacks and air attacks had been increased. Forcing the home fleet to leave Scapa Flow at least partially reduced the geographic advantage that the Royal Navy had in its efforts against German surface and U-boat actions, as Scapa Flow was perfectly positioned to project power into the entrances and exits of the North Sea. (laughs) 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. One of the major benefits that the Kriegsmarine had in their efforts to interdict British trade was the fact that they could read most of the wireless communications that were occurring on the British side. The ability of German intelligence to read these messages actually dated all the way back to 1935, when, during the Abyssinian crisis, Britain and Italy came close to war. German codebreakers at that time finally solved and decrypted British codes. This was a major advantage, especially when it came to hunting convoys, because it allowed the Kriegsmarine to keep tabs on many convoys and their escorts. This ability would become more powerful over the first few months of the war, as the convoys became more and more established and organized, making the information about their position and courses even more important. This information allowed U-boats to be directed to intercept the convoys, partially offsetting the low number of U-boats available and it also opened up new and exciting possibilities. One that Donuts wanted to try was the idea of vectoring a large group of U-boats onto a single convoy. This concept would come to be known as the Wolf Pack, and the first time it would be tried was in October 1939. Donuts waited until the middle of October for two reasons. The first was because, on October 4th, a new rules of engagement were issued to all U-boat captains in the North Sea and Atlantic, the U-boats could sink on sight any ship that was sailing under blackout rules. These rules would be even further relaxed on October 17th, when the new orders from Hitler to the U-boats would allow them to attack any British or French merchant ship, except for passenger liners, at any time for any reason. The second reason that Donuts waited until the middle of October was because he had to wait for enough U-boats to be available at one time, with six being available in mid-October to sail. Three of these would be Type 7Bs, and three would be Type 9s. But several of these U-boats would run into problems almost immediately, and before the Wolfpack even had really commenced its operations. For example, the U-40 would hit a mine as it tried to make a nighttime run through the English Channel while on the surface. It would sink almost immediately after hitting the mine. The U-42 would spot a British merchant freighter, the Stonepool, and would choose to attack it with its deck gun instead of using a torpedo 
but the stone pool was not defenseless and began firing back while radioing the submarine alarm over the radio. Two destroyers would quickly arrive on the scene and begin to attack the U-42, using Azdek to deliver a depth charge attack which would force the boat to surface, but only 17 men, including the captain, would make it out before the U-boat slipped under the waves. One of the other U-boats, the U-37, would miss the Wolfpack action for a totally different reason. It found two neutral ships on the way to the rendezvous, and, and this pulled it out of position and made it late. Now, the remaining boats, all three of them, were sent to target convoy KJF-3, which was inbound from Kingston, Jamaica. From the start, there were coordination problems among the available U-boats, with two of them attacking the convoy completely independently. The good news is that they were at least mildly successful, with the U-48 sinking two French ships totaling 21,000 tons. The first attack on any convoy was always the easiest, because all that the U-boat had to do was find its way past the escorts, then it would be faced with a nicely organized group of merchant ships that could be attacked. Generally, U-boats would attack at night on the surface, and then launch a full load of torpedoes immediately and with a variety of targets. This was due to the fact that as soon as the first torpedoes exploded, the convoy would scatter. This would make it easier to pick off stragglers, but a U-boat would never be in as good of a position to hit multiple targets at once as when the initial attack was launched. This would be the situation in which the U-45 would arrive on the scene. It would move in to attack the convoy, but it would be in a position of trying to chase down ships of the convoy as they dispersed from the U-48's attack. They would still be able to find and sink two ships, but only just in time. The U-45 would not live to experience the glory of these actions, though, because it was very quickly attacked by four British destroyers who were able to sink it. Overall, the first Wolfpack attack was a failure, with the loss of three U-boats and a total of only four ships sunk. Although, of course, one of those losses was really due to actions against the convoy. It's likely that the other two probably would have happened regardless of the plans for the Wolfpack, but they were on that operation at the time. Another convoy would be attacked by the remaining boats, the U-47, 46, and 48. Um, they would be able to intercept a convoy on its way from Gibraltar to the British home islands. During this action, each of the three U-boats would be able to sink one more ship, but they would attack far more, only to be foiled by, you guessed it, another set of torpedo malfunctions. The captain of the U-46 would become so frustrated with the torpedo situation that he would break radio silence just to report that he had fired seven torpedoes that had malfunctioned, either through exploding early or other problems. This report really brought the torpedo situation to a head, and finally the torpedo directorate at the German Admiralty started to confess to some of the problems that were being experienced. The newest issue was that the torpedoes were often running around six and a half feet deeper than what they should have been, a problem that was known to the directorate but which was not reported due to the belief that it did not matter for the magnetic detonated torpedoes because it was still within the range where the magnetic pistols should have fired. Of course, when this was combined with the problems where the magnetic pistols were not always firing when they should, well, it ended up in a lot of torpedoes that simply did not detonate at all. Solutions to these problems were, unfortunately for the German U-boats, in the future. This would be the final combined attack by the first Wolfpack, with the U-46 and 48 returning to Germany due to the fact that they were low on fuel and torpedoes. There were three major lessons that were learned from these first Wolfpack operations, and the first was that there needed to be much more coordination between the U-boats, 
coordination that began as soon as the first U-boat arrived at the convoy. In the future, the first U-boat would be told not to attack, but instead to shadow the convoy, relaying its position via radio so that other U-boats could converge on its location. Then, the second lesson, was that when all of the other boats arrived, they should all seek to attack at one time, to completely overwhelm the convoy's escorts, and then to launch the largest possible attack at one time, before the convoy could scatter. The third major change is that there would be a slight shift to the planning for the attacks, with the goal of launching them further to the west in the open ocean, which would provide the U-boats more time to maneuver, and then also more time to attack, before the escorts were increased by the anti-submarine forces that were held closer to the European destination of the convoys. These were all good lessons. It would, however, be multiple months before any of the lessons could be applied, simply due to the fact that it would take that long before enough U-boats could be collected together for another operation. After the operations of October, there would be a major diversion of U-boat resources in November to support Kriegsmarine surface operations, in late November, there was a plan to send several German surface ships, including the small battleships Gneisenau and Scharnhorst, on a sortie into the northern Atlantic, with one of the goals being to distract the Royal Navy from sending further resources into the South Atlantic to track down the Admiral Grass Bay. This kind of action by German surface vessels would almost certainly be met by a response from the Royal Navy. The hope was that U-boats could be pre-positioned to take advantage of this by being in the North Sea and being in position to intercept the Royal Navy ships that were sent to meet the German surface group. However, the interceptions would fail, and it would still cost one U-boat, when the U-35 was spotted by a British destroyer near the Shetland Islands. The U-35 would crash dive and try to evade, but it would be found by the Aztec aboard the HMS Icarus. Two more British destroyers then joined the Icarus to launch their attacks, and one of the depth charges damaged the diving planes of the U-35, and another ruptured the aft fuel and ballast tanks. Knowing that the boat was doomed, the captain of the U-35 ordered all the tanks to be blown to bring the U-boat to the surface, which allowed all 43 men to get off the boat and be rescued by British pursuers. The loss of a U-boat at this stage of the war was always a problem for the Germans, but when it came to the goal of intercepting British shipping, the larger problem is that the attempted actions against the Royal Navy diverted many of the meager resources that were available for work in the North Atlantic to the North Sea. A combination of the small number of boats available for operations and the continued challenges with getting torpedoes to actually explode meant that numbers for November were bleak. One interesting development was that during an attack on the British freighter Rothesay Castle, the U-49 would be attacked by two British destroyers. During this attack, the U-49 would descend to a depth of 557 feet, which was far greater than what was believed to be possible with the assumption that being a Type 7B boat, they would be crushed if they went to that kind of depth. This was valuable information that would be used by other U-boat captains to help evade British destroyer attacks in the future, especially due to the fact that in the early stages of the war, the maximum depth setting of British depth charges was only 500 feet. For a variety of reasons, though, there would be only two U-boats available for operations in early December, Prien in his U-47 would have his third war patrol, enough to earn the entire crew of the U-boat a badge, the U-boat badge, which was given to U-boat crews after three patrols. On his early December cruise, the U-47 would find and sink three merchant ships in a span of five days, two freighters and a tanker. These two ships combined to about 23,000 tons, 
which brought the U-47's wartime total up to 61,500 tons. The other U-boat to launch in December was the U-48, which would be active for just seven days. But those seven days would be even more lucrative, with a total of four ships and over 25,000 tons successfully sank. While these two cruises were very efficient in terms of number of days on station and the number of merchant ships attacked, they could not make up for the fact that there were just 16 total Atlantic patrols by U-boats in the last three months of 1939. These 16 patrols also only sank ships at roughly the same rate as the September patrols, so they were not more efficient overall, and so the lower number of patrols simply meant less total tonnage attacked. To make matters worse, of the 16, three of the U-boats did not return, and the U-35 was launched in the North Sea operations. With four U-boats lost during this period, what was clear is that the U-boats were good at attacking merchant shipping and sinking merchant shipping. But in late 1939, they were not able to do so at the rate that was required to begin to put a serious dent in the merchant tonnage available to Britain. The German leaders could only hope that 1940 would be a better year. During the first two months of 1940, a major problem was weather. There was no avoiding the fact that during the winter, all naval operations would be more difficult, and that included U-boat operations because U-boats spent most of their time on the surface. They're, they weren't, you know, like modern-day nuclear submarines that barely ever have to surface. The very cold winter would also cause ice problems for the German North Sea coast, which was just going to slow everything down. Even with these challenges, 18 total patrols of the Atlantic would be launched, which would result in the sinking of 58 ships through a combination of torpedoes and mines. However, of the 18 boats used, five of them would not return. Then after February, the entire Atlantic U-boat campaign would be put on pause so that all the tools of the Kriegsmarine could be focused on supporting the campaign against Norway, which was scheduled to begin in March. Because of this pause in Atlantic operations, this makes it a good moment to look at the effectiveness of the U-boat operations during the first six months of the war. For the Germans, the good news is that in total, they were able to sink 277 ships, with a little under half of those being British-flagged vessels. In total, these ships were just under a million total tons, 974,000 or thereabouts. During the same time, total imports into the British Isles dropped by about a quarter. But this was not completely attributable to just the successful U-boat attacks. This was because the act of convoying introduced a large amount of inefficiency into the trade networks, with time taken on both ends of the convoy to group ships together and then to disperse to ports for unloading. This made things just slower than when all ships could sail individually. But I think it's, it's kind of reasonable to attribute some of this to the U-boats. They were one of the things forcing the British to be less efficient with their trade networks than to use convoys, which was really a victory all on its own. The downside of this was that over the course of this same time period, 17 total U-boats were lost, about one-third of the entire U-boat force at the start of the war, including the smaller U-boats only used in the North Sea. All that the German U-boat leaders could hope for is that the replacement U-boats would start being built faster, and that those that were out there, that were sailing, that were trying to attack British trade, could somehow find a way to be more efficient 